All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask you for the grace to uh, soak up your word, to dive into your truth. We pray that you'll send forth your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to open our hearts, and to bring us together tonight. And so we ask for this grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as he said, my name is Joe McLean. <clears throat> I am myself a convert to the Gothic Church. I grew up in the Church of Christ, and I received the sacraments and went through RCIA in 1999. I came into the church in the cathedral in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. And I can tell you, I became Catholic just to get married. That's all I really wanted at the time. But little did I know that God had bigger and more profound plans for me than I was ever ready for or probably ever will be ready for. I experienced a real uh, let go and let God moment. It was sort of a mystical encounter with the living God. And, 2002 and ever since then I have been completely on fire can never get enough and he has led me on a journey to get to know him over these years and he's blessed me with opportunities to share that journey with others and to uh, speak and to work in ministry full-time so uh, that's a little bit about who I am and where I come from I work full-time for a ministry called fullness of truth Catholic evangelization ministries we're based here in Houston and we host Catholic conferences we also have a bookstore we do Bible studies, outreach, and whatever else we can get away with. Tonight's topic is the sacrament of baptism. This is a very interesting uh, topic, so a very interesting sacrament of the seven sacraments that we have, because this is the gateway, as the Catechism talks about. This is the entryway into the body of Christ. This is the gate to all the other sacraments. This sacrament forgives all sins personal sins, and sins uh, you inherit from your ancestor, Adam, the original sin. This sacrament leaves on your soul an indelible mark, a character which cannot be washed away. No matter how many sins you commit, the mark can never be removed. Once you are baptized, you are marked for Christ for eternity. That's the reason why the sacraments can only be performed one time in your entire life. Interestingly enough, in the early fourth century, once the church made its way out of persecution and was given some legal standing in the empire of Rome, they began to debate whether or not they could baptize more than once. Many Christians during the persecution of Diocletian and others, they cowered. They, didn't, they couldn't face the, the torture and the death. And so they would, they would offer incense to the, the, the pagan idols to save their lives. But once Christianity became legal and, it, and the persecution subsided, they wanted to come back. And so the church began to debate and argue uh, amongst the clergy as to, well, what do we do? How do we welcome them back? What kind of penance should they serve for having cowered in the face of the persecution instead of persevering in Christ? And can they be baptized again? Certain church fathers said yes, others said no. Ultimately, the church discerned it and ruled that you can only be baptized once because of the indelible mark, because the character that you receive in holy baptism. So it's a profound moment to be baptized. It's one that will dramatically change who you are, and we're going to talk about that in greater detail. As I said, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 1262, it says, The different effects of baptism are signified by the perceptible elements of the sacramental rite. Immersion in water symbolizes not only death and purification, but also regeneration and renewal. Thus, the two principal effects are purification from sins and new birth in the Holy Spirit. Interesting. One of the earliest artifacts we have of churches goes back to I think it's the third of the fourth century and they found it in Turkey it's a house church and one of the few frescoes that remains is a fresco of Christ the Good Shepherd it's the picture of Jesus holding a sheep on his shoulders and it's right above a baptismal font this is one of the earliest uh, archaeological finds we have of, of churches and it shows that baptism held a key place in the in the church going all the way back to the very beginning. And immersion is always the preference because it gives you sort of the fullness of the understanding 
of what happens in the, in the sacrament itself. But also in the early church, we know going back to even the first century in a work called the Didache, that if you couldn't immerse, simply pouring would work too. If you had living water like the river, well, then go for it. But if you didn't, any amount of water will do, and any type of water, whether it's in a pitcher or in a river or in a lake, it didn't matter. Simply that you used water and you performed it, the, the sacrament according to the Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you had the intent of the church to baptize and utterly transform that person into another Christ. So the church has long-standing history and precedent on how it performs the sacrament. It truly goes all the way back. But to describe to you the nature of what's going on, I want to get into a, 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 something I call typology. It's a study of types. In other words, in the Old Testament, you have foreshadowing that leads to the plot of the New Testament. You've all seen movies where they sort of tip you off. They give you little hints of things to come. That's what typology in essence is. When we read the Old Testament, we have tons of these foreshadowing moments, these, these tips, these, these, uh, these moments where they're going to just hint at what's to come. So we're going to be looking at several of these today in the context of baptism, starting all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So all the way right at the very beginning of the Bible, we're giving a given a profound insight into the sacrament of baptism. Right at the very beginning. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. So you have the, the element of the Spirit and the water. And from this water, God speaks and word, the word light, and light comes forth and enlightens the darkness of creation. So think about these elements and kind of keep them in the back of your mind. You have the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. You have the waters. You have the word spoken and light coming forth and enlightening creation. And then also what happens in the story of creation, but life comes forth out of the murky deep. So in this first story, think of the waters as life-giving. But let's progress now into salvation history. As we get into Genesis chapter 8 and 9, you've heard the story of Noah and his flood, right? Who hasn't heard the story of Noah's flood before? Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. Everybody, you're experts. Okay, there'll be an oral exam. No less than 4,000 words. No, he hasn't heard. Okay. Uh, Adam and Eve, they commit a sin. At that moment, concupiscence enters, concupiscence enters the world. Concupiscence is our tenderness to sin, or the fomus peccati. In other words, I drove down the road just a little while ago, and I was thinking, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I think I'm going to pull over, grab myself a snack. But wait a second. You know, I just ate not long ago. I really don't need that food. My body is not going to keel over and die if I don't eat that food. Certainly... I'm carrying a few extra pounds, so do I really need that food? No, of course not. I'll just go to my job. No, I don't do that though. You see, I have a tenderness to sin. So my passions are in charge of my intellect. So I pull over and I get the big gulp, I get the big snack of bags and I start pounding things away because oh, I know I want that. That chocolate tastes really good and I gotta have me some right now. That's our tenderness to sin. But prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, their intellect was in charge of their passions. And they would have said, no, my body has no need for that. You see, food is, is good for fuel. But we, our, our disordered passions have turned food into entertainment. We've turned it into something that comforts us when we're depressed or stressed out. The same is true for all of our sins, sexual sins especially. You see? So after the fall of Adam and Eve, you given this story of mankind progressing through the timeline, and it gets to the point where almost all mankind is completely corrupt. 
all of them, almost all, have given themselves over to their sinful ways. And God comes down and says, this is not going to work. I'm going to bring about a flood. I'm going to bring back all those floodwaters and cover over the earth once again and send them all off to their eternal judgment. Why would he do something like that? Better to send those people to judgment in hopes that some of them will be saved than see all mankind to become completely corrupt and then none of them will be saved. God in his mercy and love desires that at least some would be saved. But he saves mankind through one righteous family, Noah. Noah and his wife and his three sons with their wives get onto a boat with two of each kind of animal and then seven of all the clean kinds of animals. And they ride out this big storm, this flood, and they stay on this big ark. And the whole world is covered over in water and all the sinful people are, are carried away, they're taken away, and only uh, Noah and his sons and his, their wives are left. And so the way Noah tries to find out whether or not it's okay to get out of the boat is he starts sending birds and he figures, well, they're going to go out and find a tree to sit on, and they're going to either come back or not come back at all, and then he'll know. Well, he sends them, he sends them, and finally he sends a dove. The dove comes back with a branch from an olive tree. So now he knew that the waters were receding. And so God places this ark on top of a mountain, and he recedes all the waters away. And then Noah and his family come off, and they, uh, they build an altar, and they offer sacrifice to God. So through the floodwaters, once again, we are given the image of baptism with a dove hovering over the floodwaters. But in this watery abyss, you first encounter death. It is the death of all the corruption. But the good news is, from this watery abyss comes resurrection and life. For mankind is saved through this water. So now we progress even further down the salvation history timeline and we come to a time when the people of God are in bondage. They're in slavery in Egypt. They've lived there 430 years. Moses, who was a shepherd for his father-in-law in Midian, one day sees a bush being uh, is on fire, but the bush is not being consumed by the fire. It's very mysterious and it draws his attention. And as he comes near it, he hears the voice of God say, Moses, take off your shoes. He sounds just like that, by the way. Take off your shoes, for the ground you stand on is holy. So the dirt Moses is standing on is holy, so he takes off his shoes. And he stands there because God's presence, his theophonic presence is, is manifested there within the fire on the bush that is not consumed. So this, and so in this encounter, God gives Moses a job. Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt. There you're going to go see Pharaoh, and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now Moses tries to get out of the job. He starts to wiggle his way. He says, well, God, you know, I'm, I'm not very articulate. I've got this speech impediment, so you probably should send somebody else. No, no, you're it, Moses. Well, God, if I go down there, who am I going to say that sent me? Because they're not going to believe me. God says, tell him Tell them, I am who am has sent you. See, God is the great now. God is presence. God is life. And so the description, God's name itself is I am. The Greek words used were ego eimi. They'll come back to us here in a moment. So Moses goes down and he goes through the ten plagues upon Egypt and eventually Pharaoh lets the people go. But Pharaoh changes his mind and he starts to pursue the people in the wilderness. You got the people of God and then you got Pharaoh's army pursuing. Well, God's theophonic presence comes back in the form of a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so God in the cloud decides to protect the people from Pharaoh's army. And then they cross the Red Sea. A mighty wind blows and separates the sea and the people cross on dry ground. And then Pharaoh's army comes in behind them and the, the wind subsists and the waters come back and they destroy Pharaoh's army. So once again, you have an image of baptism. You have the image of the Holy Spirit in the form of the wind pushing the waters and separating them and God in the form of this cloud protecting the people while he's doing it. 
And then again, the people are saved through the water. And yet the corruption of Pharaoh is destroyed. One more story from the Old Testament. You get into the book of Joshua. The people have lived in the wilderness for 40 years. The first generation in the wilderness died off. The second generation, the kids of those who crossed that river, crossed the Red Sea, rather, are now ready to enter into the promised land, Israel. In order to do that, God sends them to cross yet another body of water, the Jordan River. And once again, he sends a mighty wind to separate the waters. And the waters stand as walls on the sides. And once again, the people cross on dry ground, led by the 12 princes of Israel into the promised land. And they first encounter uh, Jericho and they surround its walls and the story goes on. But here again, you see the imagery of baptism. They enter through the promised land through the waters of baptism. That very spot where they cross comes up to us again in salvation history. It is the spot where Jesus comes to receive his baptism, to fulfill all that is righteous. We're going to turn now to John chapter 1. I didn't think to ask if anybody had brought Bibles with them, but that's okay. I'll just read it all. John chapter 1, we are told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Does that sound at all familiar to the story in Genesis? St. John is evoking Genesis for us on purpose. His entire gospel is replete with these references to the Old Testament. But he's giving you the story of creation because he is about to tell you of a new creation. The word is spoken. The word is Jesus Christ. The word that was spoken brings light into the world. Only it's not just the light that helps us to see, but it's the light that, sh that shines in the darkness of our sinful hearts and brings forth this glory and enlightens all man. That is the ultimate meaning to Genesis. And John is bringing it up for us today. So when we read through these accounts, we have to keep those Old Testament references in mind and go back to them and read them again so we can understand more of what John is trying to communicate than if we were to just read it on our own. It goes on. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light, Jesus Christ, that all might believe through him. He was not the light. John was not. But came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. I'm going to skip down several verses, down to verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him then, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had seen from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am, I am not worthy to untie. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, not to get too geeky on you, but there's several things going on that are really significant. You see, there was a prophecy that he references, the prophecy of Isaiah and others, that referenced that in the day when Christ would come, when he would show up, Elijah would come back. That he would be the one crying out into the wilderness, wearing 
a goat's or a camel's hair and eating locusts and acting like a crazy man. But he'd be baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. And here is John doing these very things. And they ask him, well, are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Then why are you doing all these things? It's not that Elijah would be reincarnated because that's not possible. But he would come in the spirit of Elijah. But his purpose was not to bring any attention to himself as much as to direct all attention to Christ. Because the baptism that Christ brings is the one that enlightens mankind. It's a profound understanding of the significance of baptism. Enlightening mankind. It's a fundamental change that occurs. And John witnesses to it to those detractors, to the Pharisees, to the Levites, to the Sadducees, to the scribes. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Remember those images we talked about briefly? The Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of creation. The dove hovering over the waters of Noah's flood. The wind that blew the, the waters back of the, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. Here we have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove hovering over Jesus as he's in the waters being baptized by John. It's the exact same imagery, only it's the perfection of the foreshadowing or the typology that we read in the Old Testament. So the significance of baptism that Christ brings has an element of water and the Holy Spirit and a rebirth, a fundamental transformation. To emphasize this, let's turn to John chapter 3. There's an incident there where a, a man who is a ruler of the people probably a leader in the local synagogue who comes to Jesus at night. Very significant. Jesus is the light of mankind. So to encounter him at night, it speaks of the cowardice. It speaks of the fact that this person might be still living in their darkness, but seeking truth because they've come to Christ. And so Christ engages with them. Verse, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. By the way, Nicodemus is a compound of two Greek words, nikau demos. It literally means the people crusher. So the people crusher comes out at night. You know, that's an image for you. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you see that? Unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Greek word for born, born new there, in some cases it's translated born again, is uh, anothen, born from above is its translation. So unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember the story of the Israelites going over the Jordan River on dry land to enter the promised land? Our promised land is the kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 12 says, we have come to the heavenly Mount Zion, to the ecclesia, the church of the Lamb of God. Heaven is the promised land. It is the kingdom of God. Heaven is where God's will is done. It is the beatific vision, and we cannot enter it unless we've crossed through those waters ourselves. Baptism is the, key, is the gatekeeper. 
Baptism allows us to enter into the body of Christ. Baptism is the way in which we can enter the kingdom of God. And he says that. I say to you, unless one is born anothen, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, how do we know he means that? Maybe he meant something else. Let's read on. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So clearly Nicodemus didn't understand it that way. He understood it in a more carnal way. Let's listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind, the Greek word is panuma, the wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We must be born anothen, born again from above, by water and the Spirit. And notice the, the, the use of what they call a double entendre. It's a word that has two meanings. So it's like a play. It's like John is playing with words here. The word panuma for wind, he's also using it for spirit. And we saw in the Old Testament how the spirit would materialize in the form of the wind over the water, pushing back those waters, saving mankind. And so the image of the, the Holy Spirit like a dove hovering over the waters of Jesus' baptism this wind that blows where it wills, this wind that comes into your life and gives you an utter transformation without which you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, hold on, Joe. Are we really going to say that unless you're baptized, you don't get into heaven? Okay, what about the Buddhists? What about the Muslims? What about uh, atheists? Do these people never get to go to heaven because they've never been baptized? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. The Catechism of the Catholic Church does teach us that every mankind, uh, St. Paul references it in Romans chapter 1, that the law of God is written on the hearts of all mankind. That every single human person has a conscience when they're born. And the voice of God is clear to them so long as they pursue it to the best of their ability, to the fullness that's been represented to them, that are given to them. That is the voice of God in their life, and they follow that, they can get to heaven too. The church says in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that we assume that these people who authentically and sincerely follow truth, truth is a person, it's Jesus Christ, it's not an abstract concept. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said to Pontius Pilate, that those who seek truth hear my voice. So every single person, who seeks truth authentically and sincerely is seeking Christ Jesus by default. And we assume, according to the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church, that if they knew about this sacrament, they would desire it. And it's that desire that God sees. And so, yes, we might be surprised when we make it to heaven to see people that we didn't think might not be there. The biggest surprise of all will be that we're there. But we know that to those who are given much, much is expected. And so to those who are given the fullness of the faith, the full relationship with Christ Jesus poured out in his revelation, in his sacraments upon his body, which is the church, we must abide and live in that fullness. And then we must take that after a fundamental transformation in the sacrament. Then 
after our baptism, we truly do have the privilege of calling God our Father and seeking to live the life of the family, which is to go out and share the good news with all the world, to bring them all in. You see, the sacrament of baptism, as we said, is the gateway to all the other sacraments. Having been transformed into another Christ through the baptism, you become a tabernacle with which you can receive Holy Eucharist. You can pursue confirmation, which is the perfection of the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, which then enables you, gives you the graces and the power you need to go out and share that good news with all the world. Because through our sacraments of baptism, confirmation, Holy Eucharist, we are more obligated, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, to be evangelists for Christ out of sheer love for him. And because he loves them, we should love them too, enough to share Christ with them. Baptism is the doorway to all that. Baptism is the start that transforms your life and gives you the grace you need to pursue all the other. I want to tell you a story, or I don't want to tell it to you, I want to read it to you from John's Gospel, chapter 9, that kind of illustrates this point of, of transformation. It's kind of a neat story, in my opinion. There's a lot going on here. It's John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he, has, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, with this imagery of light and darkness and how Christ has come to enlighten the world. But look at what they, how they thought. It was a man, he was born blind, and somebody must have sinned for that to happen. Could you imagine looking at people with deformities from birth and somehow were to ascertain that that's their fault? Maybe it's something their parents did? No, no, no. That the glory of God might be made manifest, because look what he does. Verse 6, as he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Imagine your encounter with Christ and he spits on some dirt and rubs it in your eye. <laughs> I mean, that's some good spit. I'm just saying, you know, it's Jesus spit, so it's good spit. But still, you know, the imagery that's going on here is quite fascinating. It actually leads us back to creation because in the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, we are told that God formed man from the clay or the dust of the earth, breathing his life into man, so giving him a soul, a rational soul. And so Jesus, through the waters of creation, his spittle, and the earth, it's like he's refashioning mankind in a, in a small way in a symbolic way. So he puts this on his eyes, using this material stuff, which is not bad. God says it is good in, in the creation account in Genesis, and then sends him to the pool of Siloam, which is a, a, a giant, for lack of better terms, is a giant pool in the middle of a, a part of Jerusalem. And it still stands today. You can actually go there and see it today. And so this big square uh, rock quarry where they had a lot of water in it, this was a water source for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And... He would go, he was, he was sent there. And the word Siloam means to be sent. And he, he went and he washed and he came back and he could see. St. Augustine in his tractate on this passage in John chapter 9, St. Augustine was uh, a great, uh, Alex may know a little bit about St. Augustine. He's only got a man crush on the guy. But other than that, um, he's not lying. No. St. Augustine uh, died in the 5th century, the first half of the 5th century. And he wrote a ton of material that we still have today, thankfully. 
He was a brilliant man. He was a uh, he was baptized Catholic, became a pagan, became a heretic, then became back, and then he came back into the church. Uh, a lot in part was because of his mother, who uh, Saint Monica, who interceded and prayed for him all the time. So he was a profound man. He had a lot of very brilliant insights for us that we can that we can read today. Well, in his tractate on this passage, he actually says this man was sent to be baptized in Christ in that pool. So the transformation of baptism was, is being represented in this passage. He goes on to say, he went, he washed, he came back seeing. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, is not this man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He said, I am the man. Very interesting phrase. I am the man. Remember that episode of Moses in the burning bush? And God said, tell them I am who am sent you. The Greek words I said were ego me. This blind man who is now has his sight, who is now being questioned by the onlookers, he's using the same language. I am. This passage is almost a direct link to the chapter right before this, where Jesus encounters Pharisees and the Jews, and he's defending himself. And in uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 7, or sorry, verse 57, he says, The Jews then said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego me." I am. So they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That leads us directly into this story of the blind man. Jesus is Ego Eimi. He is God, the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the I am. And this blind man who now sees identifies himself as another Christ. Because when you enter through the waters of baptism, you enter into your death. It's not just your death. It's the death of Jesus Christ. But it's not just his death. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you come up out and they ask you, are you the same person that you've always been? Or are you somebody new? Your answer is, I am. It's like, well, which do you want? That one or this one? Yes, I'll take both. It's a fundamental transformation. And because he has this transformation, it boggles the minds of his friends and his family, and it gets the attention of the local authorities. And so they start to question him. Verse 10, they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Now notice, everything he says is accurate and true. He never says anything he doesn't know. He's very truthful and says exactly what he does know. He's very precise. Verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. On the Sabbath day, you could do no work. So apparently to, to these Jews, to these Pharisees, they understood that to mean you couldn't even heal a blind man on the Sabbath day. You see, this was something that Jesus had to constantly correct. The Jews were stuck in this legal mindset of, well, we have to follow all these rules on the Sabbath. That was never the intention of the Sabbath. And Jesus reminds them that man was not made for the Sabbath as if a slave to it, but rather the Sabbath was made for man to refresh him to build him up, to rest in God for one day out of the week, that you can recharge your batteries, spiritually, physically, mentally, so that you can go back to your work, which is always intended to be a holy offering to God. So you work six days, that seventh day you rest in God, not because you have to, but because you can. The mentality had gotten switched. So I can't even heal somebody on the Sabbath? That's kind of twisted. I mean, healing is always a good thing, is it not? This is the problem, and it starts to boggle their minds. 
Verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him, how had he had received his sight? And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened up your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. You see, his parents were scared. You see, they had passed a, a law that they made a little rule that says anybody who wants to follow this Christ, this Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, will be cast out, excommunicated from the synagogue. They did not want to be cast out. So the parents were like, no, 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 ask him. He's an adult. Hey, let him deal with it. I'm not dealing with it. And so the parents kick the ball down the field. So they call the man back and they ask him yet again, give God the praise. We know that Jesus is a sinner. So who, who healed you? And at this point, the man really stands up and he witnesses to Jesus Christ, a man whom he barely even knows. But it's a, it's a witness to the fundamental transformation that he received in the sacrament of baptism before it was an official sacrament. He starts to turn the tables on the Pharisees. You know, this man, we, get our, we, we follow Abraham, we follow Moses. How can you follow this man? Remember what Jesus said to them the chapter before. Before Abraham was, ego e me, I am. And so this blind man now, the sight turns it on him and says, what? You keep asking me, I've told you already. Do you now want to be one of his followers too? I think it's awfully funny that you say this man is not from God. And, but how did he bring me back sight? How did he give me sight? This man who's not really from God. Does that happen very often? I mean, do we, any of us know any episode ever in the history of mankind where a person was healed and given their sight when they were born without it? This is what he says to them. And they, they kick him out of the synagogue for, for a, an argument that they couldn't even refute. And it just got under their skin, so they cast him out. And then Jesus comes to see him again. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. In the Bible, you only worship God. This is another testament to who Jesus is, the second person of the Trinity. It is because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God that got him killed. For no other reason was he given this, the pronouncement of the death penalty. It's because he said, I am. Ego me. And he was worshipped by this man who was blind and received his sight. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus says that I have come into the world to help those who want to see, see. And for those who have hardened hearts, let their hearts remain hardened. Because in the end, it will be the very word that they rejected that will judge them. He's more explicit about that in John chapter 12, actually. So I want to read just a couple more passages about this beautiful transformation of baptism. And I want you to reflect on that when I ask, then we'll take any questions that you might have. But in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3, where we read, quote, this is St. Paul writing, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the baptismal waters represent death for sure, but it's the death that purges us of all of our sinfulness. The Catechism, as we said in the beginning, tells us that baptism forgives all personal sin. And it also removes the stain of original sin, that concupiscent, that fomus peccati, that tenderness to sin that we talked about, how we desire things that we know are wrong, but we fall prey to them anyway. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, I love this. This is really awesome. In paragraph uh, 1264, says this. I'll just read the whole paragraph. It's nicer. Yet certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, death, and such frailties inherent in life as weakness of character, and so on, as well as an inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence or, metaphorically, the tender for sin, fomus peccati. Since concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with, it cannot harm those who do not consent but manfully resist it by the grace of Jesus Christ. Indeed, an athlete is not crowned unless he completes according to the rules. You see, we all still struggle with the effects of original sin after baptism, but the difference is we have grace. We have God himself giving us the grace we need in order to manfully resist these temptations. And only the person who gives in to the temptation has fallen prey to sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to entertain that, to take it to that next level, to fall prey to it. You understand the difference? I mean, as men, most of you are men in here, as men, you're probably tempted every day with some sort of sexual temptation in your life. It is not a sin to be tempted, but you are manfully to resist it. Because sin is what separates you from the love of God. It is not love of God, it separates you from God himself. Sin is what kills the, the life of grace in your soul. If you die with mortal sin on your soul, you go to hell. It's that easy, it's that simple rather. So we are called to manfully resist these temptations. But it seems impossible. Yes, but the Bible tells us that all things are possible with God. And Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father have poured out their life for us so that we will have the grace to resist these temptations. That if we choose to fight, he will help us win the battle. Baptism is that start. Baptism gives us the grace we need because we've died to self and resurrected in Christ Jesus. We become a, a, another Christ, heirs to the throne. I'll read a few more verses. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it is no longer I who live after baptism. It is Christ who lives in me. That's the I am the man. That's the blind man saying, I am the man. I am Christ and I'm myself. I've been fundamentally changed. I've received the indelible mark of baptism. I have joined the body of Christ. I've crossed the waters of the Jordan and making my way towards the promised land, which is heaven, so long as I persist in life of grace, manfully resisting the temptations, but keeping my eyes on Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to work. That's very, very key for us to understand. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, the baptism gives us our entryway into the family of God. So baptism is a pretty profound um, moment in the life of a Christian. The last verse I want to read to you is from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 20. I'll back up to 18. For Christ also died for sins, 
once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the flood, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers subject to him. So all of the Old Testament stuff that we read to begin with comes to its ultimate perfection in Christ Jesus They all point, among other things, they point profoundly to the sacrament of baptism, where you die to self, you rise to Christ, where your sins are forgiven. Even so, remember, it forgives all sins. Here's a good point. In the the 4th century, when the church was allowed to legally exist in the Roman Empire, Constantine, who received a miraculous vision of, of Christ and was told, Put this symbol of Christ on the shields of your army and you will win the battle. He did that. He won a war. He became the ultimate emperor. And he still didn't understand who Christ was. And he still didn't run out and become Christian. It would be on his deathbed before he would actually be baptized. Why would that be? Because it is so serious of an issue that many people tried to extend the point at which they were baptized till the very last moment. It was like a get-out-of-jail-free card straight path to heaven. You die with no sins on your soul. You get the fast track. Because not only does baptism remove your sins, it removes the punishment that you inherit, that you earn because of the sins you commit. It takes away everything. So Constantine, and there was others, waited to their deathbed to be baptized. How lucky he was to have the opportunity to be baptized on your deathbed. How many people die today in a car accident and didn't have that moment. They didn't have the opportunity. How many people with life were snuffed out just like that? So do we wait? Do we push it? Because baptism now saves you. And in the book of Acts, you see one story after another. St. Peter standing up preaching at the, at the moment of Pentecost there where the Holy Spirit comes down as the tongues of fire, goes out to preach to the Jews and says, what should we do to get saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the repentance of your sins. Baptism is a profound moment in the life of a Christian. It fundamentally alters who you are. You become a new Christ. It puts you into the family of God. It sets you on the path towards the perfection of, uh, in the confirmation that you'll receive. And it be- you become a tabernacle of Jesus Christ in your life. And then you're sent out into the world to help spread this kingdom. Amen? All right. Well, thanks, guys.